Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're not going to start in verse 1. I did that about seven, eight weeks ago and covered the first 13 verses. So you should have that completely in your mind already from seven weeks ago. I doubt it, but you never know. But I am going to pick up and I'm going to try to spend the next three or four months just working our way through Ephesians. So it won't be word by word, but it's going to be pretty close to verse by verse. So if you would turn there, I hope you had a good week. My wife and I ran down to San Antonio for a couple of days. My son had got a new house, and I wanted to go down and see it. Only trouble is, he had just moved in. I timed my, move, my going down to see him after he got all of his stuff in the house, so I didn't have to help move. And so we got there, but nothing was set up, and there was nowhere for us to sleep. So I said, we'll just get a hotel room. And, of course, he was offended that Jan and I would go get a hotel room. He has this nice new home that we could stay with him in. And so he called my what was my secretary for almost 25 years and said, you promised we could use that blow-up mattress? She sent it over. And it was queen size. It's not a sleep number. (laughs) Wasn't even close. So anyway, it came time to go to bed. And we lay down. And first of all, I wouldn't think I was ever going to get to sleep because that was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever been. I might as well just slept on the floor. But my granddaughter, little Katie Bell, she's eight. She loves a song. What child is this? She loves this song. She plays it all night long. Over and over and over. About 1230, I'm still laying there thinking if I hear the song again, I'm going to scream. Somehow I finally fell asleep about 130. And then I woke up at 2.30. There was no bed under us anymore. <laughs> My wife came rolling up. And when you see two 70-year-olds try to get up off the floor in the middle of the night, it's pathetic. <laughs> but we then moved to the living room. I found a lazy boy. It was the most uncomfortable lazy boy I've ever been in. It's about, it's my son's chair. It's about, well, I gave it to him 20 years ago, so that'll tell you something about it. My wife slept on the couch, and we finally get the lights out, and we're trying to get comfortable about three, and you hear this beep, beep, smoke detector battery was out. (laughs) I have just about recovered from the trip. We left. got up the next morning. My wife looked at me and said, we're going home. I said, thank you. And so I now understand my father-in-law. He'd come down to San Antonio and show up about 10 in the morning and leave about 4.30 from Fort Worth. And they would visit for about three hours. And he'd turn to his Jan's mom, Kitty, and say, Kitty, let's go home. And they would go home. My wife used to get so mad because her dad wouldn't stay and visit. She's driving home the other night. She said, I understand my dad now. All right, let's get into this message today. We're going to be starting in uh, verse about 15 and up through 19 this morning, <clears throat> and then we're just going to start working our way from that. <clears throat> Let me give you a little background. <clears throat> I'm going to talk while I'm walking down here to get some water. <clears throat> the weather's changing, I, I can tell. So. Ephesus, that's one of the places I've always wanted to go to, but I've never been privileged to do that, but I've been over in the Middle East a couple times to be able to see what it's like over there. But Ephesus is a modern town when Paul writes to this church. Listen, you and I, I don't think sometimes 
fathom how amazing these cities looked if we could have walked in them. The architecture, all the stones, the columns, everything, the artwork, they still have some of that that you can go and see. And it, it is very amazing to be able to see all that. Ephesus is one of these places. It's one of the most beautiful places you could go to in, 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 in Asia Minor or would be Turkey today. And so Paul makes his first trip there. You find that in Acts uh, chapter 19. And when he gets there, he runs into 12 men. He asks them a few questions, and they'd come to leaning towards Christianity through John the Baptist. But they hadn't fully grasped nor understand all, so Paul began an explanation to them. And before he finished, uh, they're coming to Christ. They're going to be baptized. They're filled with the Spirit. And the work in Ephesus begins at that particular point. Paul then did what he would always do when he'd go into a new city. He'd go to the synagogue. He'd find one in the town. There was one there. And he went. And he walks into this place, and he speaks boldly. I'm always fascinated by that because to walk in a new place where nobody knows you and then be able to get to the front. Of course, he was a Pharisee, and he was highly educated, one of the most educated men in the world under Gamal, had great credentials in everything about him. And so he began to reason and persuade about the kingdom of God. You want to learn how to do evangelism, one of the greatest ways to learn how to do it is watch how Paul did it. And he didn't use it by trying to argue anybody in, but he would sit there and reason with them and persuade them to, as best he could. And he did that for about uh, three months. But when you begin to teach God's word, especially in an environment like that, you can begin to expect something, and you begin to expect opposition. And it's going to happen. The world doesn't care for the truths of God's word. They don't mind you believing it to a point, but if you talk about it too much, eventually it's going to rub them raw, and that began to happen in this synagogue. And, the, and Scripture tells us that they, they became hardened by his preaching. So about half the congregation, maybe a little bit more of that synagogue, began to hate him, and yet he kept going on. And then they became disobedient. They went opposite anything he said, and they made that a part of life, and they spoke evil of the way of Christianity and of Paul. And so his reputation is beginning to be slandered and he has to leave the synagogue and he goes to the school of Tyrannus where he stayed for two years and every day in the school of Tyrannus, he reasoned, he was in discussion with people about Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior. And then during that time frame, he did miracles. And there's some pretty stunning miracles that took place in Ephesus with the apostle Paul. And he he, he, he helped people get their health back. There were several things God used this apostle for in a very dramatic way in this culture. And then the impact of Christianity became so great in this particular town that they began to burn their books, their magic books. It was part of their religious uh, beliefs and all they did. And that you had that, a book burning type of thing that began to unfold during that time frame. In fact, there was quite many books were been burnt that, when that took place. But then... Something else took place. And what took place was that the word of God was so powerful. And this is what I think you and I forget sometimes is the power of God's word. That one man can walk into a metropolitan area and teach with such passion and boldness that he can literally turn the place upside down. And that's what he does. And so the Bible says that it became to grow mightily, the word of God did, and it was prevailing. It was having an impact. How do we know how big the impact was? Well, in Ephesus was the seventh wonder of the world, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. 
An amazing structure, been stunning. Anywhere in the city, you would have seen this. It dictated and controlled the entire culture of this city. But something began to happen as people came to Christ. They walked away from that. As they walked away from that and turned into Christianity, it began to cause financial difficulties for all who supported the temple. And so you end up with a riot. An unbelievable riot took place. Paul was brave enough that he walked into the riot and tried to speak to it. But when he did that, the uproar against him was so intense. The people were so angry that for two solid hours, they shouted him down. Two solid, man, you got to be mad to scream at somebody for two solid hours. But that's what begins to unfold. Why? Because Ephesus considered themselves the guardian of the temple. That the, that the image of Diane fell from the heavens into the city of Ephesus. They built this unbelievable building that still to this day is known about. And the worship began. And so I did find fascinating, as I've studied this over and over, Paul never speaks negative about Diane. He doesn't attack the other people's faith or anything and what they believe. He just kept uplifting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the most powerful way. And God began to use that. And so... It was an interesting ministry that lasted two years. It was not easy. A lot of times we think this stuff's easy. A lot of times when young men are in church and they get, in, go, get ready to go to the ministry, they think ministry has to do with going to camp, going to camp, having fun, playing games. And then they move in the ministry and after a little bit, they find out it's unbelievably difficult. That there's nothing easy about it at all to be able to stand up and proclaim the great truths of God's word. I don't know what the statistics are today, but when I started years ago, 50% of the people who started seminary never finished. And of those who did finish, another half of that group would be gone within five years. And I've been at it 45, and many of the guys I went with have disappeared. I don't know where they are anymore. There are not many of us who stayed all the way through for 45 years to be able to do that. Well, here's what Paul said, what it was like in Ephesus. He came back to see them and a little bit later, one last time. And when he came back, he said this. It was a time of humility because remember, they destroyed him. They destroyed his character. They destroyed his name. They were threatening him. And he said it was a time of tears. It was a time of trials. It was the plots against him by the Jews. Everywhere he went, he would have been in danger. But he then told the church the final word in pre- when he's with them, in present with them, talking to them. He said, but I want you to know something. I never stop. I never shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God's word. He then leaves and goes. He does write to Timothy to give help. You can learn more about Ephesus when you look at First and Second Timothy, because Timothy would have been pastor here. And he said, son, you got to know something. And he told the church when he left, for the final time, never to see him again, wolves will come in here. People will try to destroy what's been going on here. And to Timothy, he gave five names of people who later were trying to destroy the church. But this became a great church. Revelation chapter 2 talks about it in the first verse, explains to it. They did have a problem, but this was one of the great churches in Asia Minor. So we're going to look at this because I think this is why this is a, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a good thing to look at. We live in a, in, a, in a big city. I know you're in Greenville, but you live in the metropolitan area of Dallas-Fort Worth. 
It's an interesting place to live there. I haven't been there in years now that I'm back. The culture has changed from the time I was a young man when I came into Fort Worth back in the 70s. It is not the same. The culture of our country has changed. Everything's different than what it used to be when we were growing up. Some of it's a little bit good, but a lot of it has got a lot of us frustrated. See, Paul walked into a culture that was worse than anything you and I can imagine with idolatry and immorality at levels you and I can't even fathom. And he goes in and he stood firm and he preached the truths of God's word and he turns it upside down. And now what he's doing is he's writing the church at Ephesus to give these people the strength, the foundation they need to be able to live in that world. We live in that world. And he will give us things in this that will help us to be able to stand firm. I will tell you one last thing and then we get into this. The first three chapters are theology. They're explaining salvation. They're explaining God. The last three chapters, how do you live with this? How do we take these stunning truths of God's word and how do we make application to them? And I honestly believe as we go through this, one of the things you'll see is that this is built verse by verse. You can't go to the end of the book and pull some unless you're building on everything he's already said. Case in point. Whenever you see in Ephesians 5, what does it tell uh, men to do in relationship to their wives? Love your wife as Christ loved the church, correct? To the wives, what does it say to you towards your husband? Be submissive, show respect. Love and respect are the two great truths of that. As a pastor, people would come in for counseling and I would take them to that who were having marital trouble and I would take them to there and we'd look at that and I'd get them to agree, okay, I need to be more respectful. She'd go, he goes, I need to be more loving. We'd talk a little bit about that and then I would send them home. I would find out later, within about three hours of getting home, they like to have the worst knockdown, drag out fight they'd ever had. I don't know about you, but this is what I was, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm doing this for a living. I'm frustrated by this. I just gave them great biblical insight and it's not working. Yet that, I know this is true. I know it works. Until one day it dawned on me that the first four commands that Paul gives to us in Ephesians 4 on how you and I are to live our lives are what? He's going to say in those four things, Stop lying. Get your anger under control. Work and don't be lazy and steal from others. Four, don't speak negative. No unwholesome words out of your mouth. It dawned on me after doing this for a long time. That's where I was falling short. I can tell you to love somebody, but if you're not being honest, if you got a temper that you cannot control, if your words are too sharp or you're too lazy, then I can't help. So I begin to realize I've got to build on that. But what you'll find is you can't build on that until you build on who they are in Christ. And so this whole letter is telling us this amazing miracle that's happened to you and I and that we're the most blessed people in all the world and how God showed us grace and how he's made us a part of an amazing picture that we get to be a part of the body of Christ on the foundation of God's word and then out of that, we're going to walk different now. And part of that walking different is I speak truth. I don't let the sun go down on my anger. I work hard with my hands and take care of myself so I have something to share. And then out of that, 
I, I don't speak negative. I speak that which is encouraging, which we so desperately need in the world in which we live in. And then it begins to unfold. And out of that comes, I'm going to now walk in a morally pure way. And I'm just going to no sexual dysfunction of any kind. I'm going to walk according to God's plan. And then I, when, the, the, when it comes to my relationship, the Father wants to see in me out of all of this what? He wants me thankful. He wants me to sing and make melody in my heart. He wants me to be respectful of all people. And then on that, I'm now ready to talk family. And so wives and husbands have relationships. But it's built on all that Paul has said in Ephesians. And then after he gets a husband and wife where they need to be, he's going to say to the kids, listen, you need to obey your parents. But then he turns back to us adults and says, and you'll teach them by teaching your, you do this. So they see it, honor your father and mother. And then he looks at dads. I don't know if you know this. There are only two verses in the entire New Testament. Entire New Testament on how to raise children. Whose responsibility is it? Ladies, this is not yours. You're not even mentioned. It's given to the men. My kids, we didn't have a want us back when my kids were little. But they knew a few memory verses because we'd, we'd teach them and make them get through it and all that. One day I was disciplined. Jonathan, he... He had to be doing something wrong. I don't know what it was now, but I'm sure he deserved it. And so I'm disciplining. And he looked at me and said, do not exasperate your children. <laughs> that is very biblical. And so I was not quite biblical in response. I looked at him and said, son, you do not know what the word exasperate means, but in just a minute, you will fully understand that word. <laughs> and did you know that now when you get to the end of Ephesians, you get to the armor of God? You can't even be talking about the armor of God and how to stand in the evil day until you start walking in the ways he's called us to walk. And he hadn't even taught you how to pray yet, even though we'll touch it here in just a second. At the very end now, he says, here's how I want you to pray. I want you to pray at all times in the spirit for all people. Because see, the prayer of a righteous man is what accomplishes much. So you just got the entire book of Ephesians in about seven minutes. So we might as well have prayer and go home. But let me deal with the passage today. Stand with me as we read God's word. Starting in verse 15. <clears throat> For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, in the knowledge of him, of Jesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believes? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So Father, as we look at this today, speak to us in a very clear way. Some truths that we need to grasp and understand so we'll know how to ask and seek you as we walk with you each day. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, a few weeks ago, one of the things I did was I did Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So I want to just hit that quickly for the first point. You and I are the most blessed people in all the world. Do not underestimate what God has done for you. Every blessing in these verses is yours today and no one can take them away. 
But a key reminder to remember from what we talked about several weeks ago is that 14 times in these verses, 1 through 13, he is going to make some type of reference to in Christ, either in him or in the beloved or in Christ, over and over. Everything he talks about has to do with who Jesus is. That's why you and I stand like Paul and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. I'm not ashamed of who Jesus is. I don't care what the rest of the world may think or do. I know something. He is the son of God. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and died on my behalf. And he was, he, he was resurrected after three days. He's ascended to the father. And I believe that. And Paul wants us to know that every blessing that you and I have is in Christ. That's why he tells the church at Colossae, when you have Christ in you, you have the hope and the certainty of glory. That's why he tells Titus when he's writing to, the, to him as he's in Crete, he tells him this, that in Christ, you are looking for your blessed hope, the hope of Christ's return. So everything that we do in Ephesians has to do with those who are in Christ Jesus. The truths of these words apply to those who are in Christ. The ethical way of living applies to those who are in Christ. Now, there'll be those here today that won't take all this stuff very serious. Church is an activity. It's not a relationship. And so it doesn't have a lot of meaning. But to those of you this day who Christ is, you're in relationship with him. You understand that. Then these truths sink into your heart. You know them, you appreciate them, and you want to walk in a manner pleasing. Here's the blessings that you have. And I'm going to just enumerate them very quickly. One, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. There's something to this that we may not ever grasp nor understand, but God had a plan from your life before this world was ever created. You know what kind of significance that gives to you this day? Unbelievable amount of significance because he knew exactly who you were and he knew exactly what he was going to do. And as we looked at last week in Psalms 139, you were perfectly created for all that he intended to do. Second is he predestined us to adoption as sons. You have been brought into a family. That's why when you pray, you can say, our father who art in heaven, because you've been given the most amazing family in all the world. My mom was raised in a very bad home. Her dad was in a, I only met him two times my entire life. She was from Michigan. Best words I can use for my grandfather was he was evil. And those aren't lightly said. What he did and how he treated people and all that took place while he was on this earth was never good. My mom suffered through that greatly. When she's 14, her mother brought her to Texas and left her. She was on her own. She put herself through high school. She had to get a job at the theater. She found somebody to live with. Eventually, she met my dad a couple years later, and they got married and went into the Navy because that's the only way they could survive those days. So my mom had a tough upbringing and she was a tough mom to to raise me because she didn't really know what love was all about. She became a great lady when it was by the time it was over with, but there were a lot of struggles there. But the one thing I heard towards the end of her life was, she said, you know, I never had a family, but I do now. And she wasn't talking about the three boys that she now had and and my dad and their relationship was always amazing. She was talking about the father in heaven. Do not underestimate how important it is that you have a father in heaven who knows you and loves you and you're his child and he's going to take care of you. That's been his plan from the very beginning. All of this is by grace. You see this all the way through the first three chapters. Freely bestowed on us. You and I didn't have to pay a price one for this. Everything that we talk about. When you're up here, they're up here singing and you're singing with them. 
You realize the privilege to be able to sing was freely given to you? To be able to sing it from the very depths of your heart is a gift that God gave. It's a sign of being filled with the Spirit when you sing and lift your voice in praise to Him. Everything that you and I have is free. And you know in this world there's nothing free. But yet there is here. Grace has been freely bestowed on us. We have redemption, which means he's bought us. See, we were slaves to sin. We were, had another family we were part of. Satan was our father. We'll go into those details in a couple weeks. But that's where we came from. And so he buys us out. You want to know how valuable you are? An unbelievable price. The death of his son purchased you, paid it completely so that you could have a purpose and hope in life. And then he says, you have forgiveness of our sins. Do not underestimate the importance of forgiveness. A lot of us have things in our past that are not good. We, we really did some dumb stunts when we were younger. Did some things we regret. We're part of things we wish we hadn't done. But when you come to Christ, you become white as snow. You become white as snow. Gosh, guys, a new start in life. New start, new purpose, totally forgiven. Never holding it overhead. There is no condemnation, Romans 8 says, to those who are in Christ. No condemnation. The freedom to live now for the first time ever. And not only that, I said grace was free. He then says, I lavish it on you. I give it to you overwhelmingly. There are very few times anybody's lavished anything on us in life, but the Father has lavished his grace on you so that you can live. And then he says next, I've made known to you the mystery of, you, of, of my will. The mystery of his will. He's given you a little bit of insight. No, we don't see fully and clearly all that he's doing in his will, but he's given us enough to know the, what he's unfolding. And the mystery of his will simply is this. It'll tell us this in Ephesians later on. Takes the Jews the Gentiles, he brings them together, makes one new person, built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ being the cornerstone that holds all of this together. He's building a building. This is Ephesians 2. He's building a building. You're one of the stones in the building. Peter calls you a living stone in 1 Peter. We're part of that. We're being built into a building. And when that building is finished, Christ is coming to dwell within our midst. That's the mystery of what God's doing in the world. There will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will be a part of the kingdom of God, and we will be in his presence. And so God has not only lavished grace on us, but he lets us see just a little bit. And then he tells us this in, in, in the verses. I've, I'm summing up all things in Christ. Everything when it comes to the sum of it, of all that has ever happened, will point to who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And then you get what? An inheritance. You're going to get the most amazing inheritance that you've ever imagined in your life. And this inheritance makes you so rich, it is stunning. There's nothing you can do in spending it now. He doesn't give it to you early, just like your dad's not giving you his inheritance just yet. But you have an inheritance. And it says you've obtained it, which means it's already in your possession. And Peter will tell us about that inheritance later on. That is reserved. Got your name written all over it. And so what does that give us? Next thing is hope. I dealt with that a while back, but that hope is more important. And I'll come back to it in just a little bit. And then, so you do not lose it, he seals you with the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is now a down payment. There's more coming, but you have everything that you ever need. 
These people have gone from idolatry in the temple of Diane, which consumed their entire culture. God has opened their eyes to be able to see by his grace, and they now know who Jesus is. And Paul says, you got to know something. You were in darkness. You're now in light. You were in the kingdom of, of Satan. You're now in the kingdom of God. And these are the blessings that are yours. I made this point seven weeks ago. I make it as I move forward. These are yours. This is who you are right now. All those things I gave you. And they're true every single day. They are true every single day. Nothing happens this afternoon will rob you of that truth. I use Logos Bible software. I've been using it for years. Uh, I, I, some, some of the most amazing software. If you're familiar with it, the man who trained all of us through the years, I've been to a couple of his seminars when he'd come down to San Antonio, was named Morris Proctor. One of the sharpest men I've ever met. Biblical scholar and a half, but understood the software to a level that I, I walk out of there and he's taught me about 500 things and I can remember about five of them when I get back to the house on how to use it. But I've spent my whole life trying to make that software work. And every so often I have to go back to all of his videos that you can get on the web, that site that he has, and he will be teaching you and he'll show you. And it, I, I, so I keep learning. I've been learning for years trying to get this stuff down. Well, the other day, around December, I went on to, I needed to know something on my software. And they had a video up that I'd not seen yet. And they said, he'll not be doing anything for the next little bit. Uh, he's got health issues. He's 60 years of age in perfect physique, perfect shape, no health issues of any kind. So I go, okay, well, that's over. You know, he's got all his videos already done. Well, this week, I got an email from the group. He had stage four lung cancer. And he died this week within four weeks. From total perfect health just for Christmas, four weeks later, gone. Would you say he's not blessed anymore? No, he was blessed through the whole thing. See, we'd look at a thing like that and say, God, won't you forget who I am? They said in the video about him this week that his faith never wavered. His attitude to the last breath was so amazing, it was stunning. And he was more concerned about everybody else than he was himself. You know why? Because he knew he was the most blessed man in all the world. Life cut short at 62 years of age, but yet not in a sense cut short because we're here only for a time frame, a, a hand's breath. He's in eternity now with the Father in heaven. So you may say, well, preacher, you say I'm blessed. I don't feel like it. It's not a feeling. It's a truth. Trust God's word. You're the most blessed person. We've all been blessed with every spiritual blessing in every place. And I think this ought to impact us. I think this is what makes us walk out of here on a Sunday morning and not forget what we did here today, but we go home and we try to live this out. And is it a struggle? Yes. Is it easy to accomplish? Not always. We have to deal with all kinds of circumstances and situations. We have to deal with our own weaknesses. You know, my kids, now that they're in their 30s and 40s, they're, they're, they love to point out, my flaws. Because they've already figured life out in their 30s and 40s. And I just sit there. I don't say a word. Because I'm not going to react negative to them at all. I already know that. I almost want to say it took you this long to figure it out.
know what struggle's about. Just because we stand here in a pulpit on a Sunday morning and appear before people that we've got this thing down. No, I struggle just like everybody else does. But you know what my struggle drives me? Is I want to be what he called me to be. I want to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. That's what drives me every single day. And that's why at the age of 70, I haven't slowed down a bit. I'm still going as fast as I can. I want to do like my mom. She lived up until the day of her death every single day and never stopped once. Why? Because I get to be a part of what God's doing. And when this is over with, I get to go home. We're blessed. But then that drives Paul to have to do something in our verses that we read a moment ago. Because you don't just teach this. If we could just teach something and that's it, then it'd be perfect. He prays for them. Why does Paul go into prayer immediately after telling them how blessed they were? Well, first of all, before we came to Christ, our minds were blinded by Satan to the glory of who Christ is. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We had no understanding of any of that. Second reason why he begins to pray, because they now need to learn this. But the second thing is, these are things are spiritually appraised and learned by the gifts of the Spirit of God given to us. But you need the Spirit to teach you. He bears witness with our spirit that we're, his, that we're the Father's children. He's the one who opens our eyes to be able to see. James is going to say, if you lack wisdom, what do you do? You ask God. And what does he do? I promise you this is true. If you ask him, he's going to give you wisdom. He'll give to you generously and without reproach. You know what without reproach means? You know, have you ever... I had a seminary class. There's no bad questions, they said. So one of the students one day in philosophy at seminary at Southwestern raised his hand and said, uh, Dr. Bush, what about da-da-da-da? And he looked at him and says, you must be the most stupid person in this room. You didn't do your homework? I can't believe you're dumb enough to ask a question like that. I want you to know there weren't many questions asked after that because he got reproached and none of us like it. Well, you can go to God with any question, no matter how foolish it may be or how much you should have already known it. You can ask him and he'll give to you the answers in a generous and an amazing way. So Paul begins to pray for these people because these are truths that are revealed by the Spirit of God so that we can truly know and understand what all this means within our lives. See, the natural man does not accept the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 2.14 so this is what drives Paul to prayer. Because not only does he teach them, but he needs them to grasp and understand all that's going on. So why does he pray, or what does he pray on behalf of the believers? Well, if you'll notice in our, our verses we read a moment ago, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. That God would give a spirit of wisdom. Biblical truth is spiritually discerned. Do you know he prays this exact same thing in the letter of Colossians for the church of Colossae? He prays exactly the same thing as he starts the letter to them, that they would understand these amazing truths that he has been teaching. So you and I need to not only, when we come to Christ, we're in a Bible study, but be praying quietly within our heart, Father, help me to understand this. Help this to be real to me. A lot of times all the Bible study is, is you get a few facts, you walk out the door and it no more impacts who you are than a man in the moon. Why? Because you're really not that interested. But if you're interested, according to the book of Proverbs, you will seek, you will knock, you will ask, you will search for his gold, you'll search for it as silver. You'll want this more than anything else. And if you do that, you only know there's one source to get it from, and that's ask God to please help you grasp and understand all that is going on so you can have the wisdom and the understanding to be able to live life to the fullest. 
And when you get what will come from that, which is called an enlightened heart, down in the depths, you suddenly begins to make sense to you. You ever been reading a passage of scripture and you've read it a hundred times, but this time as you're reading it, suddenly it just seems like the lights came on and you saw it in a way that hit you right where you're at. That's the spirit of God working at that particular moment in your life. I will tell you, when I came to Christ in 1974 on August the 13th, I was going to be uh, 21 in in just a few days. I knew about the Bible. I grew up in a Baptist church. I was there from the day I was five days old in the nursery. We went on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, two-week revivals, two-week vacation Bible schools, all the kind of stuff. My mom and dad were in the choir, and they did this and that. And so I'm there every single day. I won the sword drill. I'm so competitive, it's almost to a fault. I won the sword drill over and over. Of course, I'd mark my Bible so I could cheat through it real quick in order to be able to win because winning was more important than knowing what was in it. I know you didn't do that, but I did. And so I would do all that stuff. I left to go to college, University of Texas. I went and joined the church because I knew I needed to join the church. You want to know why I joined the church? Because my mom and dad would get a letter from that church to my church in Orange and say I joined the church in business meeting, and my mom and dad would be proud. So I went and joined the church. The only time I went till they came to visit me one Sunday. And then I took them to that church that I was, quote, a member of. See, I didn't do any of that stuff once I got away from home because it wasn't a big deal. I was raised in it. That's all there was. Until about two years later, when my life really wasn't working all that well, and a friend of mine shared the gospel, I got mad at him for sharing the gospel with me. Why? I've already heard that. I'm in church. I already know all that stuff. There was the next night sitting in an auditorium in New Mexico, as somebody's preaching, I had never heard a word he said. I just thought what was being told me the night before. And all of a sudden, I had never made sense at the time. It made sense. Some of you, this is not a big deal. I can see it in your faces. I can see it by your demeanor. It's not a big deal. But it suddenly became a big deal to me that day. And I've never looked back. I've struggled and strived through it all to try to grasp and understand what's in this because this is more than just a Sunday morning thing we do. This is a relationship with who Jesus is. And when you get this enlightenment, you know what comes out of that? Three things, and this wraps us up. The hope of calling. You'll see that in verse 18. The hope of calling. I said it earlier. I said it last week. I'll say it again today. Hope is the most important thing you can grab a hold of in life. Faith, hope, love, these three. The greatest of these is love, Paul will say. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Paul told the church at Ephesus later that we were called in one hope of calling. All of us have the same hope who are in Christ. That we will now abound in hope. Paul to the church of Galatia says it's a hope of righteousness. Colossae, hope laid up in heaven, the hope of glory. You need this. The only way you're going to get through life is the hope that he gives you. And it comes from understanding these amazing truths of God's word. The world doesn't have hope. I've had too many of these conversations with people who didn't believe like I did. And they have nothing to grab like you and I do. Second thing you get out of all of this when you understand. You begin to understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance. You begin to understand that there's more to this life than what you and I see. And there's something waiting for us that is stunning and unbelievable. You have to walk through this in order, I think, to appreciate greatly what he's going to do for us later. Those of you who've lost loved ones, you know, my mom and dad are now gone. 
Last Sunday when I left here to go back home, as I was hitting 30 on the east side of downtown Dallas, there is an exit there called Ferguson. And so I exited that Ferguson and I went down to uh, Buckner Avenue, made a left, went to Mercer Circle, turned and drove in. It's a little circle at the end of it. And my aunt and uncle lived in that house. I just stopped and sat there a minute because they've been gone for 25 years. I just wanted to see the house for the first time in 25 years. I just wanted to see that. It's amazing how fast those we start with are now gone. It seemed like yesterday I was in high school and I wonder where it went. Life slips away so quickly it is not even funny and most of us think we can just skate through it and hope for the best. But I want you to know something. What drives me is I know how this ends. I know how it ends. You know, the proverb says, the glory of a young man is strength. The glory of an old man is gray hair. I posted on Facebook the other day. I have big following on Facebook, about 5,000 people. And I took a picture. I don't do selfies, but I did a selfie. And I said, this is what glory looks like. Give me strength. You can have the gray hair back. Give me strength. I want to run and jump and dive and play ball, do those kind of things again with my grandkids now, you know, teach them how to do all that stuff. But it's not going to happen. But I know something one day when I walk in his presence, I'll be as he is. This frail body won't be frail anymore. It'll be immortal. See through the world dimly, I'll see clearly. I'm going to see mom and dad. I greatly appreciate them and all that they did for me in my life. I'm going to see my sister. I honestly believe I will see Tammy because of some things that I know. I want to see my grandparents. I think I referenced this in a sermon while back. I want to see Billy Tom, my dad's brother, who was physically and mentally handicapped his entire life. And I want to see him, tell him, I want to see him fulfilling the dream he told me that he could walk. Those are promises that we have. But more than anything else, what's important to me is I get to see Jesus. I get to be in his presence for eternity. Walk streets of gold. No setting the sun anymore. Everything's just going to be gorgeous beyond anything you and I can fathom. That is our inheritance. But then the last thing, and I close, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believes. Do not underestimate the power of God in your life. Did you know when Jesus got on to the Pharisees one time, he really chewed them out on something. He said this to them. You're mistaken. You're the most brilliant people in all the world as far as it comes to law, but you do not understand. You're mistaken. You have absolutely no understanding of the Scripture. These are scholars. You have absolutely no understanding of the Scripture, and you do not understand the power of God at all. So you can miss all of this. But if God opens your eyes to be able to see who Jesus is and you take this serious, one of the things he'll give you is you'll understand the power of God really is real. And so you'll fight the fight and you'll walk the walk because you want to see God at work. Because the kingdom of God is not just words, but it's in power. And that's why Paul can say this. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'd rather boast about my weakness so the power of Christ may dwell in me. That's why I'll later say again, I'm content with weakness. 
I'm content with the insults. I'm content with the stresses. I'm content with the, with the persecution. I'm content with all the difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. It's in your weakness that you learn that the power of God is real. Many times, and I, I close, you'll have something happen in your life that will reveal that you don't handle it very well. I want you to know something. You're not any different than anybody else who gets blindsided by whatever may have taken place. But what you learn at that particular moment is how powerful God will be who will sustain and strengthen you all the way through what you need to go through. See, guys, he is going to get us to the finish. He who begins a good work in us, Philippians 1, 6, will bring it to completion at the coming of Christ. You and I who are in Christ are going to make it, and we're going to make it all the way to the end. So you don't have to live in fear, fear of people, fear of circumstances or situations. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and sound judgment. You walk in that, and our God will richly bless you. Paul tells the church at Ephesus in the opening chapter, you're blessed, here's why, and I'm praying you understand this. I say it close to this. You're blessed, and my prayer is that God helps you to grasp and understand why you're the most blessed person in this room. Join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you give us to study your word. And we thank you for Paul and the insights that he has given us in this opening chapter. Lord, make it real to us. Make it more than just sitting through us a preacher's sermon on Sunday morning, but these are truths that we've come to treasure and to grasp and to fully understand so that it will give us the strength to be able to live our lives because we have hope. We have something to look forward to with our inheritance and we have your power working through us. Bless the people this day. Continue your good work among the people of this church. Strengthen them. May the hope of Christ grow even stronger in the days ahead. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.